today we're going to continue on in this series that we started last week, a series um, called Waypoints. And if you weren't here, let me just tell you that it's a very unique series where we're walking through the, um, the gospel or the biography of Jesus that was written by the Apostle John. And, uh, and in case um, you, you, you didn't know this, um, this, is, um, this is a really fascinating gospel for some very specific reasons. And I'll just recap you a little bit on what we talked about last week. Not the whole message. If you want that, you actually have to go online and watch that. Um, we don't have time for all of it. But, but let me just tell you some things that I think are important for you to know about John. That Specifically, this particular biography is different from the other gospels. The other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're called the synoptic gospels. They're very similar to each other. And then the gospel of John stands out. Not only was it written in a different time, but it was also written with a very different purpose. And John has a structure and a form that he's using to lead us to a particular place. And there are two significant things that we unpacked last week as it relates to the book of John that I just want to remind you of so that it's really solid as we move into this series further. And first is that John chooses to tell the stories of seven specific miracles that Jesus performed during his public ministry. Um, The number seven in Jewish culture is a perfect number. That was a very intentional move on John's part. We're going to talk about that in a few weeks. And, uh, And the miracles in that culture were never intended to benefit a particular individual. Uh, miracles in the Old Testament and in the New Testament are actually signs that are pointing you somewhere. They are waypoints on a trail that is taking you somewhere. That's incredibly important for us to understand about this. Uh, In fact, um, John leads us through this process. He leads us to his thesis statement, which you find in John chapter 20, verse 31. And let me just actually turn there for just a moment. This This is the first time ever that my technology has failed me. Wow. Somebody that knows how to use an iPad, come help me. Well, we'll try it this way. John chapter 20, verse 30, he says this. He says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So Jesus does other signs, and John says that he acknowledges there are other things that he was out doing. Hold on just a second. I have to fix this. You guys. There we go. Did somebody pray right then? Somebody pray. Let Brad's. Otherwise, I would just be like, I think it says this someplace in the book of John. But we don't, you don't want that. You don't want me to be doing that. Um, but what John is describing is the reality that there are seven specific miracles that, that he chooses on, on purpose. And he says that these seven miracles are really intended to guide you to a place where you can believe in Jesus. And then after believing in Jesus, that you actually then begin to have a particular kind of life. That there is a life that is different after you believe in Jesus than the life you had before you believed in Jesus. And so he says, I'm leading you to this place. I want you to believe these things and I want you to experience this kind of life. And the reason that we're doing this in this series, the reason that we're looking at these waypoints, and the reason I believe this is so critical, is that we live in a day and age when all sorts of people, both inside the church and outside of the church, have interesting ideas about who Jesus really is. Um, In fact, there are people in the church that, that I listen to things that people say about their faith, things that people say about Jesus, and the way they engage their culture in certain ways, the way they behave towards our culture, that sincerely are not in line with who Jesus is or the way of Jesus. And I scratch my head and think, how does that happen if you really know who Jesus is, if you see these things for what they are? 
The the same can be said for people that are outside of the church. I really believe there are people in our day and age that think they know what Jesus is about. They think they know what the Jesus way is all about because maybe they've had an encounter or two with a few Christians or they've heard a few things on the news and so they've made this assumption that this is who Jesus is. And maybe some of you, you're exploring faith and you have questions about who Jesus is. Whether you're in the church, outside the church, exploring Jesus, no matter where you are on that spectrum, I think it's incredibly important for us today to say, well, what does Jesus actually say about Jesus? What does Jesus actually present himself as in the scriptures? And these waypoints are leading us to see who Jesus really is. And oftentimes, what we're going to see in this series are things that genuinely surprise us, may even challenge us, may even cause us to think differently about things we've thought in the past. And so we're allowing John to show us these signs, to show us this way. And what we saw last week, and in general terms, this is what we're going to see just about every single week, is that when Jesus performs these signs, there are three things that come from this. We get an understanding of who Jesus is not, we get an understanding of who Jesus is, and then we get an understanding of something that seems to have a practical influence on us. There's something about us that is revealed in these signs. So who Jesus isn't, who Jesus is, and then implications for us as we read these signs. So last week we looked at the first miracle in John chapter 2. It's called the wedding at Cana. And this week I want to look at the second miracle. It's in John chapter 4. And so if you have a Bible, a device, if you didn't bring one with you, there's one in the pew in front of you. I want you to open up to John chapter 4. Just a couple chapters after where we were last week. And while you're turning there, I just want to talk to you about what happened after the wedding at Cana. So last week was the first miracle. Uh, I got lots of feedback this week. A lot of people saying, man, I never saw that, that that event take place that way until last week. That's a really good thing. I don't know that I can promise that you'll see something insightful this week. I just, I, I can't be insightful every week, just so you know. I, like once in, a, once in a while, I happen to be insightful. But, but I want to just show you a few things that happened between that miracle and this miracle. Um, John immediately records in his gospel, right after the wedding at Cana, John immediately records Jesus going to Jerusalem, and there's an event that's frequently called the cleansing of the temple that takes place next in John's biography. So Jesus shows himself to be sort of anti-religion in a sense. If you were here last week, you know what I mean by that. Uh, And then he goes to the temple of the Jews, and there are money changers. There are people profiting from the worship system, and Jesus creates a a whip, and he drives out the animals that were being sold for sacrifices. He flips over the tables of the money changers, casts everybody out, and makes these audacious claims about who he is and what this place is actually meant for. And so that's what takes place first. And, And if you didn't believe that he wasn't into religion or religious systems in particular after the wedding at Cana, John makes it very clear that the next thing, he seems to be blowing up our understanding of how we relate to God. Right after that, John tells the story of a Pharisee, his name is Nicodemus, and Nicodemus is starting to ask questions about who Jesus is, and so under the cover of night, Nicodemus comes to Jesus, and he begins to ask him questions. He's saying, listen, some of us, we think we know who you really are. Can you explain some things to me? And so there's this beautiful conversation with Nicodemus in which there's this really famous verse that you might have heard of. It's John 3, 16. Where John, Jesus doesn't say this, John actually just stops and says that that God sent his son not to condemn the world but to give the world life and that through him you may have life, that by believing in him. And so this in conversation with Nicodemus is so critical. He's saying, listen, there's a new kind of life and he's explaining it to this Pharisee. Then after that, um, Jesus and his disciples go into the wilderness with John the Baptist, sort of an interesting interplay that takes place there. Jesus is baptizing people alongside of John the Baptist Then they go to Samaria, and this is where it starts to get really interesting, and here's why. Jesus is a Jewish rabbi. 
It's really important for all of us to understand this, that we read about Jesus and we see him interacting with his culture. He's doing so from the posture of being a rabbi. And Samaria is basically a land of, or a people group um, who were related to the Jews, but they had some different religious preferences and they had some different religious practices. And because of those preferences and because of those practices, the Samaritans were actually rejected by the Jews. They were seen as less than. They were viewed as dogs or something filthy or dirty. They weren't as clean as the Jews were. So a Jewish rabbi, according to John goes into Samaria. That's a very unusual behavior for a Jewish rabbi. But Jesus does what no other rabbi had done. And here he meets a woman at the well. Maybe you've heard the story of the woman at the well. That's the story that happens while he's in Samaria. And there's this amazing encounter, and all sorts of Samaritans believe Jesus. Literally, it says, in, in John chapter 4, it says that because of what Jesus said, there were, there were people that the Jews never respected, never accepted, and they were included in the Jesus way because they believed in him. That's what happens in Samaria. By the way, that's scandalous. It may not seem scandalous to us today. It was scandalous that John said in his biography of Jesus that here's Jesus in Samaria and all sorts of people who the Jews didn't accept were believing in him. That is a scandalous statement. What do you mean? Jesus is including people that we never thought would be included in the Jesus way. So something is stirring, something is changing, something is being turned upside down because of the ministry of Jesus. And then Jesus makes the decision to go back to Galilee, and that brings us to this miracle that happens in John chapter 4, the second sign, the second waypoint that John calls out for us. And so I want to just begin walking through this. I'm going to explain it, and then we'll see the implications for ourselves as we get to the end of this. So we're going to start in verse 46 of John chapter 4. It says, so he came again to Cana in Galilee. So he was in Samaria, and now he goes to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. So Jesus comes to Cana, and it says that at Capernaum, which is um, around 15 miles from Cana, there's an official whose son is ill. Now, um, Capernaum, 15 miles away, that's about a half a day, if not more's walk for these individuals. And in this city, there is a man whose son is ill, and the text says that this man is an official. This, again, is a fascinating detail that is lost on us today unless we understand the cultural context. So right out of this scandal of, of Samaria, Jesus talking to this woman that he shouldn't have been talking to, leading these people that were less than into his way, he has this encounter with an official, and this too is scandalous. By offering this designation, what John is saying is that this man actually worked for Herod Antipas. He's an official working for Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas was sort of a puppet leader of the Roman Empire, and he and his officials were considered to be corrupt at the least and, and compromised completely by the Jewish community because they had turned their back on their Jewish brothers and sisters. So, so these are people that are not popular with the Jews in particular. Um, they were rich, and they were rich because they'd taken advantage of their countrymen. They were rich because they worked for the king who was corrupt and working for the Roman government. And so this is who this individual is. The point is that the general public did not care for these officials. So when John says there was this man in Capernaum and he was an official, there's this immediate reaction that says, well, what is Jesus doing with his official? Why does he get to interact in this story? And this is where the story begins. We cannot miss the significance of this. 
because it's revealing something about who Jesus is not. This official is showing us something about who Jesus isn't. Um, Some of you have maybe heard me use the phrase, this idea of us digging wells and not building fences, um, that we dig wells and let people drink water. We don't build fences and keep people out. Uh, I want to explain where this comes from. Um, There's a story surrounding cattle ranching, and particularly uh, it's cattle ranching in Australia. And and it addresses a dilemma that cattle ranchers have faced for centuries, um, whether it's in Australia or whether it's in America. Um, And the question is this, how do you keep cows close to home? Um, maybe you've heard the phrase, until the cows come home, right? It seems to indicate something about bovine behavior, right? That, 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 that there's this general tendency for cows to stay out partying with their friends long after the streetlights have come on, right? So there's this dilemma. And, and in Australia, cattle ranchers were facing this, and, and they, they had a, an interesting choice. How do we keep our cattle close to home? They could do as American cattle ranchers had done broadly. The American cattle ranchers had made the decision to fence their land. We could build fences, and we can take all of this time and all of this energy, and we can pen them in, and we can spend all of our resources per- making a perimeter around our land. Or they decided we could dig deep wells and allow clean water to spring forward in the middle of our land, and the cows won't wander far from this. The idea was if we give good, clean water, the cattle won't wander too far. And it worked. Many Australian cattle ranchers, that's the way they lead their ranches. They provide fresh, clean water, and you don't have to fence the land. That beautiful reality illustrates the way that Jesus operated during his ministry, and it actually confronts the way that many people think about Jesus and his church. Jesus wasn't about building fences and saying, you're in, you're out, you're in, you're out. Jesus just said, I'm going to dig a well here, and I'm going to let you come drink. And I'm going to let you experience living water. And we're going to work out those details later. That's what he did. Jesus entered a culture that was littered with fences. He entered a world that had been divided with barriers. And so there was this group and there was that group and these people and those people. And they were bigger and they were less than. All these different ideas. These people were in. Those people were out. And that thinking was pervasive. It was everywhere in the culture. And everyone participated in fencing if you will. But then you have John presenting Jesus as a rabbi who wanders into the Samaritan land, and then in the next scene, there seems to be an interaction that's about to take place with an official, someone that works for Herod Antipas. And fairly quickly, you begin to see that Jesus is not concerned with building fences. He's digging deep wells of living water, and he's letting people drink. By the way, that doesn't just inform us about who Jesus is. It tells us what his church should be like. Amen? Less concerned with building fences and more concerned with digging wells. So we're seeing what Jesus isn't all about. But then that continues into what happens next. So let's keep reading. Verse 47. When this man, when this official heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee. Here's that he's over in Cana hanging out. It says he went to him 15 miles away, and he asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So this official, he hears that Jesus has come, he knows who Jesus is, certainly he knows what he can do, certainly by this time the story of water being turned to wine has become famous in the region, he's in Cana, he's in this place, and this man, who isn't particularly religious, who isn't usually accepted by the religious establishment, this man does what any one of us would do given the circumstances. 
He makes the walk from Capernaum to Cana because his son is at the point of death. Now, this story is about to get really complicated because it actually reveals something about the way that many of us seem to approach Jesus even today. And, and what John is about to reveal is that, yes, Jesus tears down the fences that surround what he comes to offer, but he also addresses the false thinking or the idolatries that exist around what he's actually giving us. It's a very interesting moment. There's a history of idolatry with Jesus, and when I say that, I'm not saying that we inappropriately worship him. I'm saying that we worship the wrong parts of who he is. We have a tendency that to think wrongly or think inappropriately about Jesus. And much of the malfunction of our faith and our culture today is this tendency to treat Jesus as a means to our own end. Um, like he's some sort of magician or, or some sort of genie who occasionally will miraculously grant us what we're looking for. Like um, David Wells in his book, No Place for Truth, he speaks to this and he says this. You can read the quote with me. He says, we've turned to a God that we can use rather than to a God we must obey. We've turned to a God who will fulfill our needs rather than to a God before whom we must surrender our rights. He is a God for us, for our satisfaction. See, the people of this region that Jesus is now in, this, this area around Cana, Galilee, they welcomed Jesus, but they welcomed him because of his miracles. And this official, the reason he walks 15 miles isn't because he believes that Jesus is the Messiah. He just believes he can do something about his son. He believes, Jesus, I think you can do something about this. By the way, I understand his desperation. And I would do the exact same thing. But simultaneously, it is revealing a dysfunction in the way that you and I approach Jesus. And in case you think I'm just reading into this and making this up, Jesus himself, if you keep reading into verse 48, actually calls this what it is. Notice this. In verse 48, this man comes and Jesus says to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Like you can almost hear Jesus sigh. I've just been in Samaria where these so-called unworthy non-believers have believed in me at just a word. In fact, um, John actually says they literally just believed him at his word. They didn't need party tricks. They didn't need water into wine. He didn't need to fix anything. He, they simply took him at his word. Jesus says, they took me, and that was enough. But you, you, you demand a sign. I have to do something to prove myself to you. Let me just say, this is so complicated, and yet at the same time, this is so revealing. Jesus' reluctance reveals his angst over our misunderstanding of who he is. He's reluctant because he knows. He knows that if the driving force behind our decision to follow him is the desire to have our needs met with him, we've missed the point. We're unchanged by that. If it's still about us, if it's still about me getting what I want, if I approach Jesus because I want what I want, I'm not actually following him. In reality, what I'm doing is I'm inviting Jesus to just go on a little trip with me as, as sort of a, a rabbi rabbit's foot, if you will. You know, Jesus, come along with me. I sort of want my life to go better now. And I've got a plan for it, but I'd like you to be a part of it so that I'm lucky every now and then. And if that's the case, eventually we will be disappointed because we didn't get what we want. And we'll either abandon our faith and say, well, that whole Jesus thing doesn't work, or we'll just sort of push Jesus to arm's length because we know better. We'll just sort of push Jesus to arm's length and we'll say, well, I'm going to continue to keep control of my life and not really involve him in the details of what's going on. 
So Jesus looks at this man, and actually he speaks to the entire crowd when he says this, by the way. He's not just singling this individual out. He says, you demand a sign. You demand a sign in order to believe. i got to do something to impress you. And then at the same moment, Jesus sees who's standing in front of him. And by the way, this is why I think this particular sign is so complicated and beautiful at the same time, and why you can't put Jesus in a nice little package and tie him up with a bow and say, this is who Jesus is. Because in the middle of him saying, you guys demand a sign, and I'm so frustrated with you, there's also this man, and he has a son, and his son is ill, and he's walked 15 miles. And he hears Jesus say this, and then verse 49, he says to Jesus, sir, Come down before my child dies. Jesus says, you guys all demand a sign. But this guy's standing there and he says, would you please come before my child dies? Any parent who has ever been in this place knows exactly how this man feels. Um, Someday I'll share the entire story with you, but about 10 years ago, Sherry and I were told by doctors that we had to say goodbye to our oldest daughter. And it was one of the darkest few days of my life. Now, miraculously, she lived, and someday I'll tell that story. But let me tell you that there is no greater desperation that a father can have or feel than the desperation of sitting at the foot of your child's hospital bed and literally saying goodbye. This man has a son And his son is sick. And even though the crowd has come for all the wrong reasons, we read this in verse 50. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. And then it says, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went on his way. This, by the way, this is such a powerful moment Maybe you read this and you go, well, Jesus is being really insensitive. Like the man said, Jesus, come to my house with me. And Jesus goes, no, no, I'm not going to bother myself with going. Just go. It's done. Maybe that's how you read this. Is Jesus brushing the man off? Is he, is he downplaying the illness? It's really not that big of a deal. He's going to get better. Is he being impatient? The answer is Jesus is actually being tremendously loving. See, Jesus' refusal to go with him is actually aimed squarely at the man's highest good. What is the best thing for him? And his highest good isn't that he gets what he wants, even though that's all he wants in the moment. His highest good is that he would come to know Jesus for who he really is. And that by believing who Jesus is, he might discover this life. And that through that life, there might be others who then find life as well. And that's exactly what took place. Let's finish the story. Verse 51, it says, he leaves. He hears Jesus. Jesus says, go. And it says, as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. And so he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. And the father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself, listen to what it says next. And he himself believed and all his household This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Can I just point something out to you? In verse 53, it says, he himself believed and all his household. 
Now, now, let me just explain that. Had Jesus gone to this man's house, had he made some mud with some spit, we'll get to that in a couple of weeks, had he made some mud and spread it on this guy's son, performed a miracle, there would have been people that would have seen him just for that, a miracle worker. You're just a miracle worker. That's what you do. But by speaking the word 15 miles away, the only conclusion that this man could potentially draw from this was that this man isn't just a miracle worker. He's not just some sort of, some sort of magic physician. But this man is who the Jews have been calling the Messiah. Jesus is demonstrating through this miracle. He's not putting this guy off. He's actually demonstrating this powerful spiritual reality of who he is and what he came to do. Only God could bring things into existence with the speaking of a word. Jesus grants life to this boy and does so in this way so that everyone who witnessed this would say, oh, this isn't just some some genie or some fly-by-night magician. This is somebody different. Remember, these signs don't just show us who Jesus isn't, and they don't just show us who he is, but they also show us something about ourselves in his sight. I think it's important for us to understand that this official isn't just on a journey between Capernaum and Cana and back, but this is a spiritual journey, isn't it? He's moving from this desperation to dependence, but, but then in finding Jesus' word to be trustworthy, he moves from dependence to becoming a disciple. And the same is true for us in this. See, these signs, they're pointing somewhere. They're pointing to some place. They're they're waypoints guiding us to the real Jesus that we might have real life. That's what's happening in this. Um, This week I was was working on the message and, and I stumbled across an old quote from John Owen. John Owen was a theologian in the 1600s, 17th century. And when I read this, I just knew I had to share this, but with a twist. John Owen said this. He said, if you're satisfied with an imaginary Christ, you must be satisfied with imaginary salvation. And it's true. We can settle for an imaginary Christ, and it can be neat, and it can be clean, and we can sort of stay in control. But if we do that, we have to choose to be satisfied with an imaginary salvation. It's not real life. It's not real salvation. It's just like everyone else's life, but with a Jesus twist. That's all it really is. But there's another way, and it's the way that this official discovered the way of Jesus. You say, well, how did he discover the way of Jesus? How did he actually do that? He discovered it through trust. That's how he discovers it. Let, let me just show you something interesting. This, this is, there's a progression that's taking place in this story. In verse 50, when Jesus says, go, your son is going to live, it literally says that the man believed and took Jesus at his word and he left. So at, at verse 50, the man seems to believe, right? And that's a really great moment. That's a, that's a moment where a lot of us would look and go, okay, this guy really got it. Like, here's a moment where he went to Jesus, and Jesus said a few things, maybe challenged his thinking a little bit, but then Jesus said, I want you to go, your son's going to live, and the man goes, okay, I'm going to do it, and he believed Jesus, and he trusted him. And we go, that's a pretty cool moment that that took place. But I want you to notice that it's in verse 53 that it says he really began to believe, And maybe you say, well, wait, didn't he believe when he walked away from Jesus and headed home? Well, yes, sort of. He believed Jesus for what he wanted to believe him for. At that point, he believed Jesus' word, right? But once he heard the news of his son's recovery, he didn't believe just the word of Jesus. He believed in Jesus. And that makes all the difference in the world. 
Why? Because he trusts Jesus. And through trusting Jesus, he saw the glory of who he is. Yes, he sort of believed as much as he could in the moment. But then when he saw, it says, I really believed. There was a moment when I trusted him. There was a moment when I believed what he was saying. And I sort of walked in obedience to that. But then there was a moment on the other side of that trust when I really understood who he was. And I believed. Once he saw the glory of who Jesus was, he believed. And I think this is important for us to understand that a trusting response to God's loving initiative is what will reveal his glory and grace to us. We want to see the glory. We want to see the grace. We go, God, I'm going to trust you, but first show me your glory. Show me who you are. Show me these things. And God says, why don't you trust me? Why don't you begin to walk and believe that what I've promised you is already true? And if you walk in such a way that says you believe that what I've told you is true, then I will show you my glory and my grace, and you will believe. When you trust Jesus for what he says, you will begin to see Jesus for who he is. Amen? When you trust him for what he says, you will begin to see him for who he is. That's what happens with this man. By the way, there's something embedded in this story that I absolutely love, and I think it's important we talk about it. Jesus starts this sign with, you people don't get it. Right? You people don't get it. The, the Samaritans get it better than you do. You people don't get it. And then it ends with the man and his entire household believing. And I love this. Because Jesus is accepting us even when we don't understand, isn't he? We're in. We're loved. We're welcomed. Jesus is inviting us to drink even when we fully don't understand. Which means, by the way, that even for us today, there might be moments when we think we really get it. Oh, I know what Jesus is about. I know what this thing's supposed to be like. And Jesus is like, well, not quite yet. <laughs> but I love you. And you're in. So, so the question rises out of this sign. But John is asking us, he's saying, are you looking at Jesus as a means to an end or is he an end in himself? Are you following Jesus to get what you want? Or are you following Jesus so that he can do in you what he wants to do in you? Are you following an imaginary Christ who will fix your problems? Or are you following the Savior of the world? Have you taken him at his word and begin to trust him? That's what he's asking. Would you pray with me? Doug, would you stand with me as we pray? Jesus, I know that in the, in the weeks ahead, um, we're going to read stories of people who had scales lifted from their eyes and they saw, in the physical, they saw what they'd never seen before. But I believe that you are removing the scales from our eyes through your word and you're allowing us to see who you really are. Lord, for all of us in the room this morning um, who maybe like me have had a tendency to say, you know, this group of people should be in and that, that group of people probably shouldn't be. 
Lord, we confess this morning, that's not your way. Samaritan, official working for Herod, physically wounded, religious and distraught. Lord, you welcome everybody to drink and we, we just acknowledge that today. You welcome everybody to experience your living water. And then Lord, for others of us who, who also struggle with just coming to you when we need what we need. Lord, maybe we'd be the kind of people this morning that approach you and say, Lord, what do you need? For followers of you, let us come to you and say, what do you need? Lord, help us to be the kind of people who come to you not because we want something, but because we just simply love your presence. Lord, help us to come to you out of a desire to be in relationship with you, to know you. Help us to come to you because, because we have this desire to be connected to the one who made us. And Lord, allow us to experience this life that you created us for. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's close by worship.